So I'm curious um, how that was, if you were able to stay with the perception of impermanence, and if not, what was your mind doing to kind of fall away from it? Um, And if you were, um, was there any fear or any uh, kind of way that you found to be with the rapidly changing nature of experience? Anybody wants to share anything? You've all attained great peace with <laughs> with change. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. After lunch. Yeah. Yeah, and so I. My mind kept going to lots of different things, and I was trying to bring them the form of impermanence to it. It was very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I said, no, no, it's not impermanent. It's, it's, it's not <laughs> my, my thought of what I'm thinking about is a very real, you know, issue or mm-hmm. problem that, I, that, it, that it gravitated to. And I, I don't want to think of it as yeah. Thank thank you for being willing to say that in the group. It's it's so true. Um, I read at the beginning that quote that said the reason we look at impermanence is because we don't quite believe it, and this is just how the mind is. And it's you're correct on one level. It is a real problem in your life that you're thinking about, and it's not. You can't just sort of wish it away and say, oh, well, it's impermanent, therefore it's not worth thinking about. And that's not, of course, what the teaching is. But there's this way in which we are engaged with our life and engaged with the concepts and so forth that we need to do at this level that somehow blocks the awarenesses that are going to help us actually unstick them, ironically. Um, and I don't know if you, if you were suffering over that issue or not. You might not have been. It's totally fine to think about the things in our life, usually not during meditation. But um, uh, it's, it, you know, what we're looking for is whether or not we're suffering around something that's going on. And um, it is impermanent in a sense that it's not going to go on forever. Something about it has to change. Um, might get worse, I don't know, uh, more painful. Um, but somehow um, it's helpful. The Buddha says it's helpful to know know that it's going to change in some way. And then that somehow either brings relief because it's like, okay, it's got to get better or something. Something's going to end. Or it can at least bring energy and unstickiness and actually creativity if we think things are permanent or have to go a certain way or they always go a certain way or this is just how it is and that person's never going to change, we we rob ourselves of actually sometimes finding some novel way of being with it or some could be an action where we actually decide to say or do something or it could just be a more easeful way of being with something. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's this this block, <laughs> and that's what I was pointing towards earlier, which is and, fine. And I did have that, yeah. I mean, I think I did have that insight uh-huh. before, you know, many times in my life, that I feel like I wanted 
to be something a certain way. Mm-hmm. That's right. We want it to be a certain right. way. And that attachment. Be, I could be a bit, well, that's how it is. It could be accepting and the suffering. Would diminish would at least, diminish yeah. Somehow. But then, then in other cases, it's yeah. Yeah, and we have things that we're more and less attached to and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Does anyone else want to... Okay, well, then I wanted to... um, I want to now offer a few teachings that um, help promote what's called fearlessness or, you know, basically dealing with this uh, change or sometimes the fact that we don't want change (laughs) um, or that we do want it but we don't believe it. So all of those barriers that that we're talking about, we'll do that um, first. And so remember the quote at the very end of what I read before, the very act of dealing with fear is attaining fearlessness. So that's pretty interesting. So that in itself, um, this turning toward, is already a step in the right direction. And so one option, actually, which I love uh, your example, Andreas, because the first way of manifesting fearlessness, of being with things that are changing in ways that we don't want, is mindfulness or staying in the moment or acceptance. This very basic practice of awareness Uh, is itself one of the ways of manifesting fearlessness. Sylvia Borstein says, The gesture of fearlessness is a simple gesture of accepting whatever there is. This is what's happening in this moment. It can't be other than this. This is what it is, and that truth is always soothing, which I think is interesting. It's also worth noticing, in light of that, quote, and then also in what you were saying, Andreas, is that um, what's happening in the present moment is not necessarily this whole experience. You know, you're thinking about this thing in your life, and I'm sure this applies to everyone. Everyone was thinking about something, maybe, at least today, sometime. And it's important to recognize that the actual moment of of experience, what's happening in the present, is that we are thinking about something. We're thinking about that. We're thinking about what might happen. We're thinking about what did happen. Why did she say that? Or we're thinking about just the concept of this thing going on. Okay, there's that person and there's that person and they're not agreeing. Let me think about that. But what's happening is thinking. (laughs) Thinking is what's going on. And so what Sylvia is pointing to is that at this moment what's happened is the conditions have arisen that that these thoughts are coming to me. You know, they probably weren't coming to you at the moment that you first bit into your sandwich when you were hungry. You know, it's like that was where the mind went because that was more important at that moment. But somehow the conditions have manifested that I'm thinking about this thing. And so then what we need to accept is not necessarily that whole experience, although that's useful, but we accept that what we're doing at this moment is thinking about that experience. And there's something soothing in that of just knowing, okay, at this moment I have this projection arising Usually it's not as glamorous as, you know, the whole story that's captivated us. Um, But that's useful, that this is what's happening, accepting whatever is. 
I had an experience of change quite different from thinking about an ongoing problem. I had an experience of change where I was on a long retreat, and I don't know, five or six weeks into it, I was taking a shower, and the shower had been fine for five or six weeks, but somehow on that particular day, uh, it suddenly went cold in the middle of the shower, like the hot water was just gone, and um, so that was a rapid change. And what my mind did with that was it produced the word unpleasant, which I thought was very interesting, right? I've been on retreat for a while, right? I could have said something worse than that, but I said, ooh, unpleasant. And so that was, um, you know, that was the mind accepting that this is what was happening. And, and what it could have done is then gone on and said, all right, who do I write? I'm going to write a note to the manager saying this shower went off and blah, 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 and we got to look into that and who was tending the hot water heater and why isn't there, you know, whatever it was. Um, but instead there was just that movement, okay, this is what's happening. And so, and there was something great about that. It's like it was so manageable when it was just unpleasant and it wasn't a whole story about, oh God, I'm covered with shampoo and, you know, all this. So um, keeping it really simple. I think that's what Sylvia is pointing towards, staying in the moment, accepting truth, and keeping it simple. There's something soothing about that. Um, And that's the truth, even if something is rapidly changing, or if something is not changing and we wish that it would. Sometimes that's the problem with impermanence, is that things are not impermanent enough for us, and we're waiting for them to end. But they're not. And so then there's accepting that. Okay, the conditions for this are still here. That's why it's still here. And when those conditions finally go, then it will change. But uh, they're still here. Here's another one, which points, always points away from thinking. Thinking is the problem. This is from John Dido Lori, um, who's a Zen teacher. He's giving the prologue to a koan. And he said, okay, here's the koan. Confined in a cage up against the wall, pressed against barriers, if you linger in thought, holding back your potential, you will remain mired in fear and frozen in inaction. If, on the other hand, you advance fearlessly and without hesitation, you manifest your power as a competent adept of the way, passing through entanglements and barriers without hindrance to time and season. A great peace is attained." So it's interesting, right? Confined in a cage and up against the wall. We may have this in our life. If you linger in thought, holding back your potential, you will remain mired in fear and frozen in inaction. So this is a phenomenon called, the modern word for this is analysis, no, analysis paralysis. Anybody know it? (laughs) Analysis paralysis, yeah. So this is where you start saying, okay, what about this, or what about that, or what if this happens, and if that happens, then I'm going to do such and such. And pretty soon it's been like 15 minutes in meditation, right? And so, but then what you're doing is you're creating, I like the way um, Lori Roshi says it, he says, uh, the moment we start analyzing and projecting, we give rise not to freedom, but to more things to analyze. (laughs) It's true, right? And so there's this way in which when we start thinking about something, 
that's that's our downfall. You know, that's where the fear starts coming. Oh no, what about this or that? But actually, in this exact moment, uh, nothing is happening. <laughs> We're sitting in a room with other people meditating, or sitting in our house thinking about something, or something, or even you know, in, in most moments, there's not much happening. Um, even if there is a moment where there's something happening, like the fire alarm goes off or one of you keels over and we have to deal with that, um, even in that moment, it's okay as, as long as I don't stop and say, oh no, what am I going to do? What's happening? Um, that starts to make it worse. Now, these teachings are never monolithic, of course. It's not like you should never, ever think about things or you should always just go with your gut reaction. We know people like that, and that, that doesn't always work to just not think about anything ever. But um, essentially, coming home to the moment of what's happening right now and not getting entangled in the whole thing and, and all the thought really, really cuts down on the fear. And I think we can we can see that for ourselves. So when the mind goes off, sometimes it's too late, sometimes the mind has gone off into fear, and then we need an antidote to that. But this is sort of, we're at the base level of, can you just be with what's happening? Can you just accept the truth in this moment, keep it simple, not get caught up in thought? That alone is the big, you know, is a big reducer of fear. However, if it goes forward, then there are other remedies. Um, one of them is loving-kindness, interestingly. So people don't always think of that. They think of loving-kindness as a remedy for anger or hatred, which it is also. But the original story that goes with um, when the Metta Sutta, the loving-kindness teaching, was given was that there were monks who were heading off into the forest to practice, and the Buddha sent them to a particular forest, and they went there, and they sat down to meditate, and there were, it turns out there were a bunch of tree devas living in that forest. Um, and they weren't that happy that a bunch of monks had come to live there. And so at first they were happy. They thought, oh, cool, monks. And then they realized the monks were going to stay. And so then they got angry and they started making bad smells and bad sounds and scary images. And the monks got terrified, haunted woods, and they ran back to the Buddha and said, we don't want to meditate there, it's scary. The Buddha said, okay, okay, you have to go back, but when you go back, you will you will hold in your mind this spirit of loving kindness, of wishing well for all beings, projecting it out to beings here, far away, uh, born and to be born, large, small, medium, weak, strong, and that will be your protection you can't come crying back to me. You have to go back. Um, but do it this way. And so they did. They walked there and they recited the Metta Sutta and radiated loving kindness. And the tree devas were at first were like, okay, there they're coming back. I thought we drove them away. And they started making the bad smells and the bad sounds. And then they were just captivated by this field of loving kindness that was coming at them. And they changed their story, and they began supporting the monks and so forth. It's a somewhat idealized story, and it's not a indication that if we love people, they will, you know, with the purpose of, oh, let's get them to turn around and like me. Uh, maybe not, but maybe what will change is your attitude toward the situation.
and that will soften. So Sylvia Borstein again says, Fearlessness also comes from benevolence and goodwill in the face of whatever oppresses you. You are afraid, but instead of fighting what faces you, you embrace it and accept it. You develop loving kindness as a direct antidote to fear. I found this to be very useful, actually. First of all, it is just hard to be a human, and so you can have loving kindness for this is a hard time. This is challenging right now, and just soften a little bit around instead of, you know, there's this feeling of softness, acceptance, or somebody else. Wow, they must be having a hard time to be acting so difficult for me right now. Um, They may not change. It's not that that projection is just going to cure them, but we may soften and think of something more creative, some more creative way of interacting with them or or just be more accepting of how they are. And that reduces the fear of interacting, the fear that the situation's going to spin out, the fear that everything's going to fall apart. So that's helpful, even if the fear has already started. And then there's the the practice of refuge. So we've been kind of circling toward this. Um, This is from the Dhammapada. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. These are all external places, right? We try to go to the mountains, the forest, the retreat center, whatever it is. None of they maybe provide temporary relief, but they're not the supreme refuge. Not by going there is one released from all suffering. It goes on. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of all suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So that's interesting in that he doesn't say you should go to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as sort of gods or things that will provide some kind of protection to you like a mother or father would, you know, some kind of a paternalistic thing. But he says when someone does that and sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, then that is the supreme refuge. So there's sort of two steps. One takes refuge in the practices and these teachings. Through them, one understands the Four Noble Truths, and that is secure. So wisdom or insight provides the secure refuge. Um, And it's interesting that he shows the Four Noble Truths. I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but first I want to read, um, in case that language was a little bit old-sounding, I want to read a modern version that actually comes from the Mahayana tradition. Refuge is common to all strands of Buddhism. Uh, It's not only Theravadan, obviously. So here's a modern language, Mahayana version of that same verse. Well, it's from a different teaching, but it's the same idea. 
locked up in the prison of their own patterning, whom can ordinary gods protect? Who can you count on for refuge? Go for refuge in the three jewels. This is the practice of a bodhisattva. So it's a different concept. But let's look at those first two lines. Locked up in the prison of their own patterning, whom can ordinary gods protect? What do you think the ordinary gods are in this case? It's the defilements. It could be the defilements. Um, Sometimes we take those as gods, like... We take refuge in our anger, for example. Um, A lot of people use anger as a protection, so that could be it. Um, Yeah, so that's another one of the defilements, actually. So if we unpack that, yeah, and I I think so. Um, That's in a way what is pointing towards. So ordinary gods are things like, we talked about them this morning, money, status, or maybe just earlier today, exercise, health, um, our job, our relationship, our car, the ordinary gods, quote-unquote, in our lives, we may not think of them as gods, but we we place something in them somehow um, as this this is me or this will reify me or protect me. Um, and it's not that it's not that we literally pray to them or something, but when they're taken away, we feel um, we feel the loss. It's like if you lose your job, for example, we're very, very identified with our jobs and our careers in this society. That's pretty much who we are. What do you ask somebody at a party? What do you do? And we want to know. We need to categorize this person. Are they a psychotherapist? Are they a scientist? Are they a surfer? <laughs> you know, what is it? Um, and that tells us something about them. And if we lose that um, rapidly, people feel very challenged. They're even challenged by retirement, which is normally a good thing, but it can be more surprising than people realize to retire. So ordinary gods. And then it says, locked up in the prison of their own patterning. That refers to these patterns, these habits of mind that we develop around them and that we've been talking about as our response to fear. And we have the, the existential fear of this life is difficult, challenging, uncertain. I can't control it. What do I do with that? I try to find things that I think are relatively secure and safe, my job, etc. And this is pointing right at it's not sec- ultimately secure. Not that we shouldn't do these things, have our life, but don't rely on that completely. Um, it's so painful if we are, and then they go away, which they can. They can. So much suffering over that. So I want to return to the way the Dhammapada verses mention the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are an insight, are insights into impermanence. People don't always connect them because they're about suffering nominally, right? But what do they say? What do they really say? Suffering, the arising of suffering, the, the ceasing of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of all suffering. The arising and ceasing of suffering. The Four Noble Truths are about impermanence. What they tell us is incredibly good news, which is that suffering is impermanent. <laughs> Hallelujah! Suffering is impermanent. <laughs> It arises and it can cease. 
it's impermanent like everything else. We're so used to saying, oh my God, my life is impermanent, my health is impermanent, my house is impermanent, how am I going to deal with that? Guess what? Suffering is also impermanent. <laughs> That's what we learn through the practice. It's such good, it's so good. <laughs> like, how is this not joyful? So, um, yes, everything is impermanent, and so including suffering. And there's an end to it. And there really is a complete end to it. We need faith in that until we see it for ourselves. But there really is a complete end to suffering because it's conditioned. Suffering is conditioned. What's the condition for it? You guys know. It's the second noble truth. Craving. Craving, clinging, attachment. That's the condition for suffering. And if it's not there, there's no suffering. So then the path is obvious. How do I not do craving? How do I not do suffering? How do I not do attachment? That means we won't have the suffering. Not that that's an easy prospect, but at least the path is clear. That's why the emphasis is on letting go in the practice. Why? Because every time we let go, we're reducing attachment, reducing the conditions for suffering. That's why this is such a deep teaching on impermanence. And why it seems so ridiculous that we would spend our life trying to make it permanent. (laughs) Instead, we should create the conditions for the impermanence of suffering. That's what we can do. It's pretty amazing that the Buddha could formulate that so clearly. He could take a life. He had a life like the rest of us. It was challenging, and he had to eat every day, and he had to do all that. And somehow, through all of that, he saw, oh, this is the essence (laughs) That, that, that everything is impermanent, and that's challenging, but suffering is impermanent too. <laughs> and so, and to find the, the conditions for it and how to release them. Amazing. So, the practice is that we learn more and more clearly. We watch again and again that suffering does end. And, um, and then we gain confidence. Ah, we see that it ends, and we see how it ends. And then we can learn to work with everything from the fear. and It's a process. It's not that we get it overnight. But at least we start getting it cognitively. And then we can do the practices that will help. Okay, so now we're going to... Um, we'll take a little break, so that because we've been sitting still for a while. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll do... Um, an experiential exercise around meeting change, and then we'll have a chance to sit again and do some some reflections at the end as we look toward the, the peace that the Buddha was pointing to at the end of suffering, the end of really, really realizing the impermanence of suffering. So we'll point toward Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.